Welcome to WNL After Class, the lifelong learning podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. Today, I'm talking with Kish Perella, a leading expert on business and human rights and also Washington and Lee's class of 1960 professor of ethics and law. Prior to joining the law school in 2013, Kish practiced international litigation and arbitration at Cleary, Gottlieb, Stein, and Hamilton, where her clients were multinational and sovereign entities engaged in complex disputes before U.S. courts and international tribunals. If you'd like to learn more about Kish, please visit our show notes where you'll find her bio and a link to her webpage that houses a description of her scholarly pursuits. I hope you enjoy our discussion today about Kish's entry into academia and her approach to teaching courses on torts, contracts, and international business law. I think you'll also appreciate how Kish helps us begin to unpack the way we consider our own thoughts and approach to corporate social responsibility. So Kish, welcome to WNL After Class. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So I'd like to begin by learning more about your path to Washington and Lee. Prior to joining the law school faculty, you practiced international arbitration and litigation at a global firm. What sparked your interest in this area of law, and, and then what made you want to shift your career to academia? So I went into the law because I was really interested in how it had the potential to solve real-world problems. And so my background was in political science, and I focused on peace and conflict studies. So when I went to law school, I was still channeling the enthusiasm from the late 90s about the potential for international tribunals to try to address uh, armed conflict and other types of war crimes and atrocity crimes that were happening around the world. And I thought that law was a really important uh, sort of component of these sort of global uh, conversations. When I joined a private law firm, I wound up practicing international dispute resolution. So the issues were not armed conflict. They concerned international economic relations. And we defended countries that were, quote unquote, sued before international fora by groups of investors for breaching bilateral investment treaties. So while the policy areas are very different, international economic law versus, say, um, the norms of international armed conflict, what I was excited about was that we still see uh, individuals, corporations, and national governments resorting to international law before international tribunals to work out their differences. Why I entered the academy was because I was interested in the study of law as much as I was in the practice of law. And while the practice of law in DC gave me exposure to really cutting edge issues, I didn't have the time to sort of educate myself or satisfy my curiosity in all the different issues that were raised by the matters that we worked on. That's what the academy allows me to do. I get to sort of sit back and take a broad look at how different things are connected and read deeply about um, how legal issues are addressing certain problems, how they're failing to do so, and what potential solutions could be. 
You've been teaching at WNL since 2013, but you've remained active in corporate social responsibility and business law. How do you incorporate those global conversations about the role of corporations today in the classroom? Sure. I mean, I don't think we have to look too far to be reminded about the ways that corporate power touches our lives. So for example, I teach first year contracts. On the very first day, we talk about mandatory arbitration clauses. And we talk about how these affect the, the rights of individuals to go to court to challenge what a corporation might be doing to them. And then we also talk about how we can find these clauses in all kinds of contracts that people don't read. And so it makes me really, really happy when my students inform me that they started reading their contracts. So I've told them so many times, read the user agreement for TikTok. Or, <laughs> you know, in the second week, I had a number of students who were like, well, you know, I purchased XYZ and I, I read the contract that it came with. I read the terms and conditions. And I noticed that um, you know, my rights are affected this way or that way. And that is something very, very immediate. They can see it in the first week or two. And that makes me really happy because they're also consumers. And um, I'm delighted to see that they're using this knowledge that they gain in law school to immediately uh, change their own behavior to the extent they can. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring this home for a minute, and mm -hmm. you, you talk about reading contracts. Mm -hmm. And so many of us in our busy day-to-day -day lives, we see a contract and we skim through it and sign it, and it could be pages long. Mm -hmm. So what is your advice for the everyday consumer? I think it would be important to at least look out for certain types of clauses. And that's what I sort of educate my students on. When we read a case, for example, there's usually one particular contract clause that's at issue, whether it's a mandatory arbitration clause or it's an indemnification clause or a limitation of liability clause. And so what I tell my students is we are unpacking contracts one clause at a time, and they are expanding their own vocabulary of the types of clauses they expect to see in, say, consumer contracts. And I would say that to the everyday consumer as well. There are certain clauses that are common in a bunch of these contracts. And so it would be good to sort of educate yourself on kinds of clauses that you're going to watch out for, such as an arbitration clause, because that will mean that you cannot go to court to challenge what this corporation might be doing to you and others similarly situated. Um, look for waivers of liability, limitations on liability. And that's what I would scan for when I'm looking at it. When it comes to things like Facebook or Uber or other things, I would look for clauses about um, data collection as well as clauses about under what conditions these companies can sell your private information to third parties. And those are clauses that I think everyone should be on the lookout for. Now, these are not negotiated contracts, right? So if you don't like the clause, it's not like you can negotiate that with Uber. That's a second challenge. But I think the first step is just educating my students and the broader public as to how these clauses have real-world impacts on their daily lives. Thank you. That's very beneficial. So we talked about teaching in the classroom. How does your teaching 
inform your practice? I get great ideas when I teach my students. So let me give you an example. <laughs> so I teach both torts and contracts. And I still remember that one fall I was teaching my students the concept of privity of contract. And I'm not gonna bore you with the details, but basically it is, I was explaining this concept to my students and I'm a big fan of chalk and blackboards. So of course it was covered in chalk dust by the end, <laughs> but I was explaining this concept to them and everything clicked in my own head about how these two different fields, contracts and torts, do come together in ways that I think are applicable to the subject area I've studied, but that I don't recall anyone else exploring. And so this you know, lesson in class was the spark for two different papers that I wrote. The first one was in a peer-reviewed journal, and I actually dedicated it to my 1L students because if it hadn't been for my need to teach them about this boundary between tort and contract, then I wouldn't have even come across this gem of an idea. Um, and the subsequent paper actually uh, was just recently cited in a, in a UN report because it was also relevant to how contracts affect broader global issues. And again, all of these are follow-on benefits from what happens in the classroom. So it sounds like you learn just as much from your students as they learn from you. Yes, in two different ways. Sometimes it forces me to clarify things that I think are clear, and then I realize it was never clear to me. <laughs> and there are assumptions that I had, so that's wonderful. And um, on other occasions, my students bring perspectives that force me to think about a familiar problem in different ways. And that's always really, really welcome. So another thing that I would say is every time I teach a subject, I'm given a new opportunity to teach it better. And so for example, I've been teaching contracts for, I don't know, 12 years. And sometimes I've been teaching the same cases for 12 years and certainly the same topics for 12 years. But every time I walk into the classroom, I try to do it slightly differently because I know what's in my head and the information that I want to communicate to them, but there's always a different way to do it. And that's what I really do like about teaching because every time it's, you know, attempt 12 or attempt 13 to teach the statute of frauds. And by doing so, I may come across a way not just to teach it, but to also research it, to expand on it, to analyze it. And so I do think the teaching half and the research half have this really, really important relationship. Even though you're teaching the same thing, it's different every time. It is different every time. And that's what's really fun about teaching law because a no number of these cases are really, really old. And even though I've taught the cases again and again and again, and I know them by heart, it's never the same uh, both times because first the students are different. And so the way I teach is heavily what we call Socratic. So it's not what I would call conversational, it is more of question and answer, where I pose the questions and they give me the answers. And I use something called a rapid fire cold call, so there's no warning and nobody raises their hands. I just go through all 40 students every single class. Um, and what's interesting is 
the questions they answer, how they answer it, the perspectives they bring to the case makes it fresh every time. And every time I teach it, I teach it slightly differently because I'm not the same. And with more information, more practice, um, different insights, I frame the cases differently. I teach different things about the case in a different order. And so it's always fresh, I would say that. How many years ago would you say that teaching methodology changed from lecture to this more interactive conversational mode? So in law instruction, the Socratic method has been favored for a very, very long time. In fact, I think it's sort of the traditional approach to teaching a lot of law school classes, especially first year courses. So for example, when I was in law school, we all had a version of cold call. It's the rare teacher that did not use it. Now, did all my teachers call on every single student, every class? No, most people don't do that. But Washington Lee has very small section sizes. You know, our sections are very small compared to most law schools, which gives me the benefit of going through all 40 students. And my sense is that students really like it because it includes almost everyone in the class and um, it engages them in active learning, which is one of the reasons law schools have traditionally favored this mode of instruction. Let's talk for a moment about your appointment as the class of 1960 professor of ethics and law. Tell me about what that means to you personally and professionally. Well, it's a great honor, and I'm delighted to serve in that role at Washington and Lee. I use that as an opportunity to basically host really important conversations on this campus for the students, uh, faculty and staff, and alums. So for example, last year, um, the Institute for Honor hosted a conversation about corporate responsibility in times of armed conflict, inspired by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There was a great deal of scrutiny as to what corporations were doing following that invasion. And so I was delighted to invite um, Ambassador David Sheffer, who gave the keynote address. And what's extraordinary about him is that he was actually the first ambassador at large for war crimes. And it was really exciting for me and those who attended to have such an expert deliver the opening remarks and talk about um, a number of armed conflicts around the world and the role of corporations in it. We also had the former head of human rights at Twitter participate in these conversations, as well as um, a scholar who is a global expert on business and human rights, and two of our alums who um, are executives and advise executives on how they navigate these challenges. And so I love the fact that this conversation happened on our campus. You know, next March, we're gonna have also another really exciting conversation. Um, we're going to talk about corporate responsibility in the opioid crisis. And I'm delighted to share that our keynote address is Beth Macy, author of Dope Sick. And we are also going to have another um, group of exciting panelists, both from business, law, and bioethics, who can help us sort of understand the role of corporations 
in this crisis. So I think that's the best advantage of this position and the resources that Washington Lee has invested in supporting these conversations. So Kish, you mentioned that the Institute for Honor this year is going to focus on corporate accountability related to the opioid epidemic. How does this relate to Honor and the Institute for Honor? Sure. I mean, I think the crisis implicates ethics questions across all dimensions, especially for those in professional schools or those considering um, going into a one profession like law or medicine. So for example, the opioid crisis raises questions of business ethics, medical ethics, and legal ethics. And those are going to be uniting themes in how we unpack both the causes of the opioid crisis, as well as how corporate actors have responded to it. Let's pivot a little and discuss your scholarship. What are your academic interests? I work in a field called business and human rights which is relatively new, but is often associated with a broader and older concept called corporate social responsibility. But business and human rights is different because it really connects international law and a lot of global norms on human rights to corporate actors. The challenge has been that so many international human rights norms have been directed at governments. So we have, you know, lots of treaties and different types of international guidelines on what governments can and can't do. What we don't have as much on is what corporations can and can't do when it comes to human rights and human rights across all fields, whether we're talking about child labor, whether we're talking about women's rights, whether we're talking about access to health, labor rights. These questions have been unasked for a long time until the field of business and human rights really uh, established itself. And so what I try to do is first educate my students on these issues and how they are really going to come up in their own practice. When I was practicing in Washington, D.C., I don't know that any of the major law firms had um, partners or associates or even um, sort of what you might call departments that are dedicated to business and human rights. But now if you go on the websites of a lot of these major law firms, they all have these. And they might have half a dozen partners who have expertise in business and human rights which speaks to two things. Governments from around the world are starting to regulate, creating legal risks for a number of corporate actors who do not attend to their duties when it comes to protecting human rights. Beyond regulation, I think there's a lot of publicity and public awareness about the role of corporations in fueling armed conflict, or in um, contributing to human rights violations by not protecting their own services or how they're conducting business in a particular country or various other issues. And so this is a, a major issue in business law and international law. And what I love about my research is that I get to span both disciplines. I get to talk to scholars who work 
almost exclusively in international human rights law and scholars who work exclusively in corporate governance and try to connect these two important conversations. Well, then what would you say are the specific mechanisms for holding corporations accountable? Well, I'm a lawyer. So the first one <laughs> I'm going to start with is, quote unquote, the law. Mm -hmm. There's always litigation against corporations for their human rights violations around the world. Unfortunately, in light of uh, recent Supreme Court case law, that avenue is probably not as viable as it may have been. But there are different types of legal strategies um, that are being attempted around the world to find a cause of action that could win, that could work to hold corporations accountable. In addition to this, um, a number of governments, including the U.S. government, is basically regulating in this space, whether it's um, export imports or it's mandatory disclosure laws or mandatory due diligence laws. A number of regulators have prioritized the human rights practices of corporations and are directly imposing obligations on these actors. So that's legal risk. In addition to legal risk, there's always reputational risk. Companies look really, really bad when the New York Times has a headline that accuses them of all kinds of wrongdoing. And so, and this reputational risk can hurt them in a number of ways, indirect and direct. And no company wants to be accused of committing human rights violations. And so I think it's really, really important for companies to take a preventative stance and to really engage in human rights due diligence, whether or not they're obligated to do so. Another reason is from sort of a management perspective, poor human rights violations can also compromise the relationships a corporation has with a number of different stakeholders, partners um, that it has in order to succeed. And so it's just not a good idea to manage these uh, potential risks poorly because it might change different organizations' willingness to work with that corporation in the future. Kish, could you illustrate these concepts with an example? So a number of organizations have uh, started to publish report cards on companies. So if you Google Know the Chain, for example, it will publish a report card for companies like Apple um, and other big companies that inform the public in a one or two page document uh, how this company is performing on human rights due diligence. There is another organization called Access to Medicine, which ranks 20 large uh, life sciences companies on how they're performing regarding the right to health. Um, there's also the corporate human rights benchmark, which also usually identifies a sector such as like the auto sector and will rank major companies within the sector as to how they perform on human rights due diligence. And these are all public. And so consumers can look at the rankings and decide whether they're going to change their minds on who they buy from. 
And it's not just consumers who look at these. Investors are increasingly looking at these rankings and pressuring companies to change their practices because it just looks bad. Um, and it could be a sign of other types of mismanagement of other issues within the company. Thank you for that. We'll, we'll post those on our, yeah. uh, on our show notes so that everybody has easy access to them. How does working outside the university impact your scholarship? I think that one of the benefits of interacting with non-academics is twofold. One, I receive confirmation about whether the research questions I'm pursuing are the relevant questions to ask. For me, it's really important that my scholarship is not just satisfying my curiosity or the curiosity of the four people who might read my paper, but that it's actually relevant in some way to the issues that I really care about. And so one issue that I really, really care about is how contract clauses or contracting practice impacts a corporation's human rights practices in its supply chain. And so working in the academy, I might have certain hypotheses. I am uh, privy to certain types of information within the academy, but that can only get me so far. So it's really, really important to um, get a feedback loop from people in the industry um, or uh, human rights lawyers or business executives or who have you that can confirm that basically these questions are really important. Now, they might not agree with me on what I think the best recommendations are, but it's important to at least identify the key questions and then to also potentially get feedback on the implementation possibilities and challenges of some of the recommendations I may have. So then who, who are the audiences that you're trying to reach with your scholarly work? They're multiple. I think the first group are probably lawyers who are advising uh, multinational clients, either as external counsel or internal counsel. Beyond that, they could be human rights organizations or different types of civil society organizations that try to convince companies to um, improve their human rights practices. They could also be um, other scholars, obviously, who are reading this material. I also hope to engage those within companies who I think of as just basically management or senior executives who might be interested in this information, not only because I have recommendations for how they might do things differently, but because there's a good case for why they should be doing it at all. So that's who I hope to reach. We've talked before about your love of reading and that you challenge yourself to read broadly mm -hmm. and not just within your favorite genres. And I, I think that the majority of us stay with what we know and love. So I find it fascinating that you approach your book selection in this way. I'd be curious to know what your favorite genre is and what genre have you pulled from that is farthest from your comfort zone? Wow, I do really love reading. My comfort zone is mystery. 
So I particularly like 19th century uh, murder mysteries. And that's just my go-to. I, I really love um, sort of the atmosphere these books create. And uh, I really love stories that have a strong sense of place, um, as well as strong characters. The books that I'm unfamiliar with are ones that I would call sort of epic fantasy. You know, I love watching movies like Lord of the Rings, but I've never managed to actually read the books. So it took some work, but I uh, had to sort of work on my skills of getting through these, you know, major world building novels. And my favorite author is N.K. Jameson. And I'm so glad that I kind of branched out because she really defines this new genre where science fiction meets fantasy. Um, so I love that. You know, I wouldn't have enjoyed these books had I never really pushed myself to kind of read well beyond my traditional comfort zone. How did, how long did it take you until like into the book? Was it chapters? Was it just pages where you thought, wow, I'm really enjoying this? I think for these long novels, it might be like a hundred to 200 pages. They require a lot of patience. I mean, for example, there's another book I loved. It's by Susanna Clark. It came out over 20 years ago and it's called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. It's over 800 pages and it took me about 150 pages before I started enjoying it. So you were committed. But I had to like read 150 pages <laughs> before I was hooked and I consider it one of my all-time favorite books. So would you say that that's one of your the, the favorite books that you've read? Yes, top five is, uh, is that book and I'm just waiting for her to come out with something like that again. Um, but again, it's a, it's a type of fantasy that's a little different. Um, but I wouldn't have had the pleasure of getting to know those characters or her writing style had I never gone beyond my traditional comfort zone. That's inspirational. I have to think about that. So, so I know that you also love cooking and have quite an impressive cookbook collection. Tell us about that. So I can't stop myself from buying cookbooks. I buy cookbooks like people buy shoes, I guess, or other things, handbags. But cookbook covers are always so welcoming and I love looking at them and Yes, I have run out of shelves for my cookbooks because they, they span all types of different types of cuisine from Italian, Indian, um, Asian, and all types of things from breads to soups to salads. And of course, I have a hefty collection of baking cookbooks. So are you building more bookshelves or getting rid of cookbooks? <laughs> well, as I said, I do love to read and I do love to collect cookbooks. So we're always buying bookcases in our house. <laughs> um, and my, um, my cookbook collection has now uh, stretched to the maximum capacity of our kitchen. So they're now in the living room and they're in my <laughs> office. They're just everywhere in the house. Oh, you can consider that art on your wall. Exactly. So do you have a signature dish? I do not. Um, there are lots of things I like to make. Last night, I tried to make my mother's chicken curry. And sometimes it turns out and sometimes it doesn't. And honestly, that's what she used to tell me. And I found that a very unsatisfying answer until I experienced it myself. 
Um, but my husband was very happy with it, so I guess that's it. So no rhyme or reason for why a curry dish wouldn't or well, would be successful? There are lots of different spices, and uh, my mother is not really into measuring things, and neither am I. It's just about eyeballing and uh, aroma and stuff like that. So you could see why there'd be a great deal of variation yeah. in the, the output. Well, thank you for that. And, and Kish, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for all of you for tuning in today. We hope you'll visit our website, wlu.edu lifelong, where you'll find many different lifelong learning opportunities. You'll also find our show notes for today's episode, as well as an introduction to our fabulous podcast team. Jim Goodwin is our technical producer. Kelsey Goodwin and Sarah Butler are our writers. And WNL alumni Eric Owsley, Jury Sackett, and Kelly Melvin serve as our strategic advisors. Take a look, and until next time, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future.